The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Review. St. Augustine of Hippo is one of the most influential Christian thinkers of the past 2,000 years, and his work also offers fresh insights into the lives of women in the late Roman Empire. That's the contention of the historian Kate Cooper, who has drawn on his confessions to tell the stories of Augustine's mother, his lover, his fiancée, and the Roman Empress Justina. Kate's book, Queens of a Fallen World, has recently been shortlisted for the Cundall History Prize, and she spoke to Rob Attar about this unique window into the 4th century. So Kate, your book focuses on four women who are mentioned in St Augustine's Confessions, but I wonder if we could begin with just a brief bit of an explainer on who he was and why he's such an important figure in the history of Christianity. Thanks. Augustine's a really interesting figure because for the Latin Christian tradition, he's almost the founding father. Let's say somebody in the age of Martin Luther, if they had to ask who's the greatest Greek writer and who's the greatest Latin writer, they would have said St. Paul for the Greek and Augustine for the Latin. He's really that influential. 
But he's also, to me as a social historian, he's also super interesting because he was somebody whose experience as a Christian bishop in his adulthood made him very, very interested in family dynamics. And if you think about it, you know, in his pastoral job, what you're dealing with literally often is people's problems with their wives, with their children, with their relatives. And so in that sense, he comes from quite an interesting family. And you can see that he starts as he becomes a bishop and goes into what we would probably think of as the second phase of his life where he's converted to Christianity and he gets really involved in pastoral work with the church. You can see that he's thinking of his close relationship, particularly with his mother, as a kind of window into how women think. He's interested in how slaves think. And again, in the confessions, you can see that he's musing over stories that his mother told him about slaves and their masters in the house where she grew up, for example. So there's a sense that he's almost using his family lore of stories as a kind of library of human experience that he can draw on. And we're incredibly lucky that he was so interested in that, but we're also particularly lucky that he happens to have been the son of a mother who was a great storyteller. And Augustine himself was a great preacher. And I think one of the reasons he was a great preacher may have been that he came from this family tradition of storytelling. But it's clear that his mother, Monica, thought in stories and used stories almost the way a preacher would. She's got a point she wants to make. So she says, here's a story. And now here's the moral of the story. And she's doing that with her children. And what's pretty unusual for that time period is that Augustine actually thinks his listeners or his readers will be interested in knowing where the stories came from, rather than glossing it over and saying, oh, I read a book. Instead, he's actually saying, look, this is a story that an enslaved child told my mother when she was a girl, and she then told the story to me. And that lineage of the story, I think it's giving credibility for his readers to think this is a guy who really is listening to women, who really knows something about the experience of people who aren't like him. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! 
at participating McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I wonder actually if you might be able to share any of the stories that you think are particularly interesting that his mother passed on to him. There are two stories that I think are the most significant, as it were. And here I have to say, I really, I want to be a novelist imagining my way into what she's thinking on a given day as she talks to her son. But one story that Monica thought was important and that Augustine not only thought was important, but really used almost as the pearl that he built some of his big theological ideas around is a story where when Monica was a child, she was raised in a household in what's now northern Algeria. It's a part of the world close to the Mediterranean coast where it's very cold in winter, but it's very, very, very hot in summer. And she was raised in a household where there was an extremely strict attitude towards drinking, not only drinking alcohol, but also drinking water. The nursemaid who raised her taught the girls, Monica and her sister, that they shouldn't drink during the heat of the day, even water, because they should build a kind of a strong character that even when they were in a situation where they were about to faint, they knew they were Roman children and they could stand up and be brave. Now, to us, it's just insane that parents would instruct the nanny to put children who are in kind of 40-degree heat to tell them they can't have anything to drink. But Monica told this story to her son, and she added a kind of addendum which was that one of her chores in the household as a child was to bring the wine for her parents' table at dinner. And there was an enslaved child who went along with her. I call her Illa, which is just the Latin word for that girl, because Augustine calls her Illa in Latin. He doesn't give us her name. But Monica and Illa would go every day to the wine cast to bring wine to the table, and Monica would take a sip. And, you know, we presume it's evening, so she's technically allowed to be drinking water, but wine is another question. And at a certain point, Monica tells the story that the other little girl just said to her, you know, Monica, you're an idiot. You're going to grow up to be a drunkard. I'm just, I can't believe you're doing this. And Monica was absolutely mortified because she was the daughter of the master, she was supposed to be, in a sense, in the terms of Roman honor, she was supposed to be the dignified one of the two of them. And here is this little girl who's just, I mean, bless her, an absolute nobody, noticing her failure to live up to the great Roman values that she's supposed to be living up to. So Illa humiliates Monica. And Augustine says that Monica told the story to Augustine to say how she realized in that moment that not only was God watching everything she did, but that, you know, that you can't hide if you do something bad, but also that the lowest person in a situation 
hierarchically may be the person through whom God chooses to speak. So Monica's idea there was it was almost worse that it was somebody lower than me in the hierarchy who had this message for me, but it was definitely a message from God. And what a person should do in the world, she's kind of a folk philosopher, the way we should live in the world, says Monica, is we should always be watching what the little people think and the people whom nobody values, because those may be the people who really are the ones who have wisdom and knowledge and who we should be learning from. And that idea of the wisdom of humility really is almost the core of Augustine's philosophy of what it means to be a Christian person in the world and what it means to live the philosophical life as he understood it, as opposed to a lot of Roman thinking, which is much more, yes, okay, a good Roman is going to be stoic and is going to rise above things. But on the other hand, the Romans are very strongly into the idea of hierarchy in the sense that if you're a person who has status, you need to live up to that status. And Augustine comes along and says, don't get all caught up in trying to live up to status, actually try to let go of status. So it's really something that he takes. And I think he does something pretty creative with it, ultimately, that might be a little bit different from what Monica was thinking, because it's so central to his thinking as he grows up to become a writer and a Christian thinker, you know, and he ends up writing theological treatises like The City of God, which take this idea that there's wisdom in humility and really go places with it theologically. I've had a number of people say, oh, this idea of humility, isn't he just saying that people should be quiet and that people should know their place? But it's actually the opposite. When Augustine talks about humility, what he's saying is, it's the powerful who need to be humble. It's the powerful who need to be listening to the women and the children and the slaves. And of course, Illa is a female and a child and a slave. And she's the one who gives Monica this precious pearl that becomes the core of Augustine's thinking. The other story is very, very different. And it's one where, again, you really need to be a novelist to try to understand the sort of spooky dynamics of why the story was told. So the story itself is when Monica was first married, the Roman age of marriage was 12. And Augustine says that Monica married when she reached marriageable age. So probably around 12. Women tended to marry men roughly twice their age. 25 is the sort of benchmark age for a Roman man to get married. Augustine says that Monica went to her husband's house and she found that she was constantly in company with her mother-in-law. Monica's father-in-law seems to have been dead at the time. So Monica's living with her husband and her mother-in-law and clearly a reasonably large number of slaves. And the 12, 13-year-old Monica discovers that the slaves are telling lies about her to her mother-in-law, and her mother-in-law starts to turn against her. And Monica becomes frightened because she's away from her parents. She doesn't really know how to create an oasis of safety for herself in this new environment. Monica has also told Augustine on a separate occasion that his father was known for sleeping with inconsequential women, which probably means 
probably means the slaves of the household because that was pretty normal, sadly, in the Roman world was for male slave owners to sexually exploit or coerce the women in the house. But sometimes the female slaves could get a more positive status from being elected as a sexual companion. And this seems to be have been the case in the house of Augustine's mother when she first married, what would ultimately be the house where he grew up. So Monica comes into the household. One of the female slaves tries to turn her mother-in-law against her. And Monica tells the story about how instead of getting angry, what she did was she started a campaign of strategic obedience to the mother-in-law, showing the mother-in-law that if there was one person in the household that she could trust, it was Monica. And ultimately, and Augustine says this in a way that is, again, to our sensibility, a little bit shocking, he says things turned out well because the mother-in-law turned against the slave and had her son Patricius, Monica's husband, beat the slave. And within the mores of the Roman world, this was considered to be a happy outcome, which is kind of sad. But the point of the story is fundamentally that Monica was in a situation where her husband was sleeping around and it was creating a situation where there was a defensive action by the slave to try to kind of sideline the new wife because she was afraid, understandably, that she was going to lose the privileges that she had earned through this sexual relationship. So it's a difficult situation for everybody. Monica comes in and uses her cunning, essentially, to find a way forward. And remember, this is a woman later in life looking back on her life as a frightened 12 or 13-year-old. Why does Monica tell this story to Augustine? It seems really likely to me that the moment at which that story came out and got the emphasis that it clearly got in Augustine's imagination, this is one of the top stories that he wants to tell when he's thinking about the stories his mother told. I think there are two reasons, and they're both creepy. One is that Monica later told Augustine that her husband had been a really difficult character, he was volatile, he was prone to anger, and that her friends were surprised that Patricius didn't beat her in the way that many Roman husbands beat their wives. And it has to be said that philosophical writers were against domestic abuse, but the law of the land made it clear that it was absolutely acceptable. So domestic abuse is pretty much an average woman's experience in the Roman world. And Monica was obviously really delighted that given the fact that her husband was really the type to go for it, he didn't. And she's telling Augustine on the one hand that she managed to maneuver in this situation of being the less powerful person in this household to protect herself. So on the one hand, she's kind of proud of that. She also says that her friends, some of whose husbands did beat them, praised her for the fact that she managed to find a way to protect herself. And they looked to her for advice. Can they find a way to have the success that she's had? So on the one hand, there's this whole really painful context where Monica's telling these stories about the knock-on effect of her husband's uncontained sexual energy in the household and how it's creating 
anxiety, it's creating fear, it's generating violence, and certainly it does generate violence in the slave being beaten, even if it's not leading to her being beaten. But at the same time, she is interested, and Augustine is interested, in the question of how a person who's in a dangerous and frightening situation, how can they maneuver? How can they find space for their own agency? How can they secure their own safety? And I think in the modern world, we would not be completely happy with the way that both Monica and Augustine tell the story. And because to our sensibility, it kind of sounds like a blame the victim situation where she manages to keep everything on the up and up and to make sure that the violence falls on people other than herself. But nobody's challenging the system. And, you know, and I think there's some truth to that. But on the other hand, I do think we can also acknowledge that both Augustine and Monica are interested in kind of the problem of what does a person do if they're in a situation where they really don't have power to control the situation. So that's that's one aspect. The second context for this story being told, I believe, is that if you line up some of the things Monica says about that situation with Augustine's own situation, when he gets to the point that he's about to marry, I think you have a pretty good chance of showing that Monica was telling Augustine the story at the point where he was going to marry as a kind of cautionary tale to not be like his father. And the the specific circumstance for that is that Augustine, in his late teens, started a long-term stable relationship with a lower-class woman who could have been one of the freed women of the family, could have been one of the slaves of the family. She may have been an independent woman of low status, but it's likely she was part of the family entourage, as it were. And he lived with her for over a decade. They have a child together. They've never been married. And when Augustine's in his 30s, he decides that now's the time to see if he can marry an heiress and get a hold of a dowry that will allow him to embark on a political career. So he's in a situation where technically everybody thinks it's fine in the Roman Empire at this period of history. You've got a concubine. That's really, it's an instrumental relationship. If you had intended to stay with her for life, you would have married her and you didn't. And nobody's been confused. She hasn't been misled. It's just an instrumental relationship and that's what it is. So that's the relationship that Augustine has with the woman that we call Una, which again is just the Latin word for someone, which is how Augustine refers to her. Again, he doesn't give us her name. So Augustine's relationship with Una is longstanding. Their son is in his teens. She's followed him from Africa to Italy, where they're living when Augustine's in his 30s. And then, all of a sudden, he has this opportunity to to marry money. And the family of his fiancée say, you can have our daughter, but only if you send that woman back to Africa. And I think the point at which Monica told Augustine the story was the point at which he all of a sudden realizes, oh my God, I want to get married. That means that my life as I've been living it is over. I'm no longer with Una. If I do this, it's going to be a complete break, even though we always thought that this relationship wouldn't last forever. 
actually, it's real now. And the reality, I think for Augustine, was a lot more upsetting than he expected it to be. And I suspect that he was asking Monica, did he really have to send Una away? I can't be sure of that. But it makes sense that the moment at which she sort of brings out the story. Now, Monica's thinking of Augustine's fiance, who at this point is a 10-year-old. She's got two years of being engaged, and then at 12, she'll marry. You know, and Monica's thinking, of course the parents want him to get rid of the concubine. Or is he insane? Why wouldn't they want him to get rid of her? And so she starts to tell him a story of what happens when the concubine is still in the wings causing trouble. That's what I think that story is really doing. You mentioned that his fiancée was 10 at this point and would have got married at 12. Yeah. Was it typical for Roman girls to get married at such a young age? I mean, nowadays that seems very problematic. Even in those days, was that not quite a challenging kind of relationship and age gap? It's a great question. You know, Roman law says 12, and what they're thinking about is puberty as being the age at which a girl can marry. And the dynamics behind that are that families often are really trying to make plans for marriage alliances that involve money and property. They're betrothing children. They're sometimes making promises about children before they're even born. And in that sense, we think it's crazy. But from the point of view of Roman law, they're saying, look, we're being conservative. We're saying that the marriage shouldn't really happen until puberty you know, until it's realistic that the point of marriage, which is reproduction, could potentially start to happen. I think on the whole, families who had the opportunity liked to hold their daughters off the marriage market for a bit. The average age of Roman marriage seems to have been more like between 14 and 17 rather than right at 12. But having said that, with heiresses, again, it's a little different. Heiresses tend to marry earlier. And there's a lot of evidence that heiresses were sent to live with the family that they were going to join as essentially guests, hostages, I'm not sure what the right word is, but to be raised by the mother-in-law so they would fit into the family culture, even though they weren't married and they, you know, and they weren't sleeping with the future husband, or at least they shouldn't have been. But the families wanted to get their hands on the girls, even before the technicalities of the marriage contract kicking in and the dowry being handed over. And I think for us, one of the things that's very hard to understand about marriage at this period in the late 4th century. We're 400 years roughly into Christianity. We're roughly 70 years into Christianity being the official religion of the Roman Empire. But our Christian ideas of marriage haven't happened yet. And in fact, it's going to be Augustine who is going to be the person in the Latin West who starts all of this talk about marriage as being the unity of one man and one woman who owe each other the same kind of loyalty. He's not the only person to preach that Christian men should be faithful to their wives just the way they expect their wives to be faithful to them. But he's part of a group of preachers who start preaching this way in the 380s and 90s and 400s that, you know, it's a new sound. People aren't 
saying that a hundred years earlier, even the Christians. So there's some new thinking about that. But from the point of view of the girls, it's got to have been terrifying because often the young women, they're going to a household where they're going to come under the authority of a mother-in-law who they pretty much have to establish a relationship with from scratch. Then they're coming under the authority of a husband who's probably twice their age or in any case, significantly older in most cases, certainly where the young woman has money attached to her. And so you're in a situation where as the bride, where you're at a very young age having to stand up for yourself and to lose the network of family members that is really the only world you've ever known. So I think we have to have a lot of respect for these girls and what they went through. In This is one of the very, very few areas where if you're a Roman woman, where you almost want to be working class in the sense that, I mean, the truth is working class women very rarely married. But if they did marry, it was because they were a bit older and they had managed to get a bit of property attached to themselves somehow and they have a better chance of their marriage being advantageous and also being part of the community that they're already integrated in. But the heiresses are, they're like pawns in a sort of chess game where everybody just expects her to stand there and be quiet. And so the the subjectivity of these young women is very hard for us to understand. There's some beautiful and terrifying poetry about the fear of a bride on her wedding night. You can really understand why they would be so afraid. But also why the idea of courage in the Roman Empire. We think of the Roman world as a very macho world. But I think the Romans knew that it was just as terrifying to be a Roman woman as it was to be a gladiator or a Roman soldier. Augustine himself doesn't actually marry, though, does he? He doesn't marry the heiress he's betrothed to. So what happens there? What changes his mind? Augustine's broken engagement is one of the just great stories of Latin literature. Basically, what happens is he gets cold feet. And I would argue from the evidence of the confessions, he gets cold feet because he realizes that marrying this heiress for money and ambition because he wants to have a political career. And he's he's clear in the confessions that that's why he wanted to get married was specifically because he thought with a dowry of that size, he would be able to convert his ability to give beautiful speeches into a Roman governorship. And so he's literally, he's saying, okay, I've got somebody who's going to bankroll my career in politics. I'm kind of a colonial boy who came up through the colonial administration from the provinces. And now I've come to Italy and I'm part of the great Italian scene. I'm going to make it. And all of a sudden he says, wait a second, the price of doing this is selling my soul. I tend to think that the selling his soul issue really is about his relationship with Una and his sense of disappointment at himself for dropping her as quickly and easily as he does, even though even more painful to us, he keeps their son and sends her back to Africa. There's another element of self-hatred in this, in that Augustine tells us that 
When he sent Una back to Africa, she said to him, she swore that she would never be with another man again. And people have assumed that this means that she decided to join a monastery as a Christian widow. It's possible that that's what she did. We don't know for sure. Augustine, by contrast, as soon as he can, he finds another concubine. He says, okay, technically, I've sent the woman home. Nobody can be upset if I take another concubine for the two years while I'm waiting until I actually get married. Nobody's expecting me to go without sleeping with a woman for two years. And the truth is that his fiance's family probably thought, okay, better that he have a stable relationship. You know, as long as the woman that we're worrying about making trouble, as long as she's gone, it's better for him to have a stable relationship than to be sleeping with prostitutes and bringing disease into the house. So again, the way the families thought in this world was to us very brutal, but that's what he's expecting. So once he's in that situation where he's, you know, he's got his second concubine, he's in this period of waiting, and he says that this period of waiting was just absolutely miserable, that every day he was asking himself, how can I possibly be doing this? This is just despicable. So at that point, he has the moment that he later talks about as the great moment of his conversion, where he's with his mother and his friend Olypius in a cottage in Milan near the city walls, and he hears some children playing, and they say, take it and read, is the lyrics of their song. And he sees a book on the table, and the book is the letters of St. Paul, and he opens it up, and he points to a place on the page, and he reads part of Paul's letter to the Romans, where he talks about not in reveling and drunkenness will we come to the Lord. And Augustine says, oh my goodness, the apostle is telling me that I can just let go of all of this. And he says that he goes into the house and tells Olypius that he's decided not to get married. And here is where I have my biggest beef with the tradition of Augustine scholarship. A lot of people say that right then he realized that he wanted to be a monk. And that is not what the text tells us. What the text tells us is that he realized that this marriage was not good. And to me, it, with everything that I know about Augustine's thought, it seems much, much, much more likely that what he's saying is he found a way to get out of this position of doing something really brutal just for the sake of greed and ambition. And there's no evidence that he immediately becomes a monk. He does become a monk, certainly a few years later. But it's possible that that was a longer process and that, you know, and that he, looking back, he sort of thinks, oh, it's clear that the sexual drive was part of my problem. But even years later, when he's writing the confessions, he's very clear that the moral problem was this problem of greed and ambition and throwing away one person for the sake of another person who can give him political career. So the fourth woman that you cover in your book is a very different kind of woman. She's actually a Roman empress, Justina. So I wonder if you could explain how she comes into Augustine's world. Justina, in a way, is the person who has the least excuse to be in this book, in the sense that Augustine only talks about her very, very briefly. But there are two reasons that I wanted to bring it in. One, I believed and still believe that 
telling the story of Justina's life is actually quite a useful way to bring the reader who hasn't been living in the fourth century into understanding what was at stake in Milan in the year 386 when Augustine makes all of these painful decisions. What was really going on? I think Justina is a figure who's very much at the heart of the political dramas of the problem of the Roman Empire that's just about to fall. The barbarians are at the gates and the armies are in the Alps and everything's falling apart. And because Justina is part of a military family and because she's another one of these women who maneuvers herself into becoming Roman Empress in a way that you really wouldn't have expected. So she has a wonderful story of female agency in adverse circumstances, which really fits the theme of the book. But the reason she's in the book is in many ways because her story helps the reader to come in and understand the world that the other women were part of, particularly thinking about Monica and Una and their experience as African women who have come all the way to Milan to accompany Augustine, who's trying to make his career at court. The Roman emperor was living in Milan in the 380s. Monica and Una are fish out of water in that world. Tacita is not really a fish out of water. Tacita is the name that I give to the fiancé, but she's so young that she doesn't really know much about the world outside of the household. But Justina's the one woman in this landscape who really understands that world. So in that sense, it seemed to me that it would be really useful to the reader to see the world through her eyes as well. And I think it slightly changes the balance of how we understand Augustine. And there are two reasons for that. One is that many historians have failed to really understand what a knife's edge the people living in Milan were dealing with in the mid-380s. There's a civil war going on during the period while Augustine himself is in Milan, a rival emperor invades the city and sends the the imperial family away as refugees. And there's this sense that everybody is not sure what's going to happen next and everybody's on edge. And I think understanding that that's the backdrop of all of this wheeling and dealing and trying to find a powerful father-in-law who will both give him a bankroll but also probably protection, it slightly changes the balance of what's in the story and it changes the balance of the story Augustine's trying to tell. The second reason that understanding what's going on with Justina is so interesting, is that during this period, Augustine has found a kind of intellectual mentor, Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan. And in 385 and 386, Ambrose and Justina, who had originally been allies, start to pull apart and become rivals. And there's some evidence to suggest that Ambrose was actually working for the usurper Magnus Maximus and was actually trying to undermine the imperial family for reasons that are partly military, that aren't just sort of religious preaching against their theological views, which he didn't like. But Ambrose 
starts to preach viciously misogynistic sermons against the Empress Justina. And that's interesting to us for two reasons. One is Augustine mentions it, and not to his credit, he doesn't particularly, you know, he doesn't say, look, Ambrose is a great guy, but he really shouldn't be talking this way. He actually says, oh, the Empress Justina, whom the Bishop Ambrose has preached against in such a fiery and impressive way, you know, and you kind of think, oh, come on. But what can I say? Ambrose is a misogynistic populist preacher, and Augustine pretty much just, you know, gives him a pass on that. However, on the other hand, I do think that it's it's useful to us because Augustine himself is often accused of misogyny. And I kind of think it's helpful to understand that we're dealing with a world where there's a huge amount of misogyny in play. And if you measure Augustine on the Bechdel test about whether two women are talking in a film, I really feel there should be a Jezebel test where men are talking about women and can they do so without coming in with some sort of crazy misogynistic literary motifs. But if you measure Augustine on the Jezebel test, he really isn't bad at all by comparison to the people who are surrounding him. And I think it's not that I want to give him an absolute pass on every single failing he had, but I do think it's really, really useful for us as modern people to understand that where Augustine fits into that patchwork is that he is one of the people who actually pushes against some of these ideas about sexual exploitation of women being so normal that you don't even have to think about it ethically, or the idea that marriage is something where, yeah, women have to be incredibly focused on standing by their man and being completely sexually loyal to them or else, but the men don't have to think about their wives at all. There are all of these ideas that were absolutely common in the ancient world that were still absolutely common in Augustine's day. And Augustine, after he has this whole sort of crisis that we've been talking about in the 380s and his whole life falls apart, it's a train wreck, he converts to Christianity, he figures out, okay, I'm just going to try to start again. What he does over the next 30 or 40 years is to build a life in which one of the absolute themes of his life's work is to try to change the way powerful people treat the powerless, the way men treat women, the way masters treat slaves. He's starting to think ethically in a way that is much closer It's not all the way to what we would see as perfect, but it is much closer to something that we can recognize as a kind of Christian ethics that, you know, that would resonate with what we think of when we think of somebody trying to live up to spiritual ideals. And it's just fascinating that those ideals actually aren't all biblical. A lot of them are ideas that were developed across the history of Christianity. And, you know, from my perspective as a social historian, two things that are super interesting about Augustine are one, that somewhere in there, there was a moral conscience that made him notice some of the compromises that he was expected to make as an ambitious young man in that world. Somewhere in there, 
I think possibly thanks to, you know, some of these people like his mother. And I think we can imagine that Una was also not silent in her relationship with him. He talks so much about how the other low status women in in the world around him were constantly saying to their masters, you know, you're wrong, do this, do that, don't do that. I don't think there's any reason to think that Una was silent. The only time she talks in the confessions, she's really delivering him an absolute moral lesson that, that's very painful. And my idea about why she's so silent in the confessions is partly that he's kind of saving up her voice for that one really powerful moment. So in that sense, I think we kind of, we need to see Augustine as a person who's part of this transition towards a different kind of humanistic attitude about how people should be. And he hasn't got all the way, but he is offering some very distinctive things. And the fact that we can see the roots of some of these ethical insights in his family life and in his personal life, I think that's really kind of fascinating. That was Kate Cooper. Her book, Queens of a Fallen World, The Lost Women of Augustine's Confessions, is shortlisted for the Cundall History Prize, of which we are a media partner. We'll be speaking to other shortlisted authors in the coming weeks, so do look out for those. And you can listen to the interviews we've done already on our website at historyextra.com slash and find out more about the prize at cundallprize.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.